Good morning, everyone. Welcome to another Monday edition of our live devotionals, working through the F260 Bible reading plan. If you are joining us from Missoula this morning, you'll notice it is a wonderful morning to be sitting inside, um, drinking some coffee and reading your Bible. It is rainy and 50 degrees. That is your weather update from me. Hashtag not a meteorologist. Um, anyway, Happy 4th of July week. Um, we are continuing to work through kind of the Old Testament histories. We are in kind of the last phase of Israel's history in the Old Testament. So this is the phase of the return and restoration of Jerusalem. We have seen uh, Adam and Eve in the garden. Uh, we have seen <clears throat> the garden fall. We've seen God promise to Abraham to bring about a people. We've seen Abraham's line go into Egypt and thrive. We've seen them come out into the promised land and uh, fail. We've seen them go into exile and now God is bringing his people back. And so that is what is happening in this section of uh, the Old Testament. God is bringing his people back out of captivity, bringing them into the promised land. And uh, that's kind of when they get established here in the next, I don't actually have the Bible reading plan in front of me, um, but this is setting up what we're going to see in the uh, New Testament. In fact, if you are uh, have your Bible open in Zechariah, which is where we are today, you would re you'll realize we are only a handful of pages away from Matthew. Um, and that's not because this is chronological. We were also in Ezra yesterday, which is way before in the Bible. And so the Bible's not uh, in the Greek order, which is what we have right now, not necessarily chronological. Um, but what I want to do today is, again, we're just looking at this. This isn't a full-fledged Bible study. Um, there's a lot in this text, which a full-fledged Bible study would be great for. And I encourage you guys to have that diet of deep dives, looking at God's word together, um, perhaps with the brother or sister in Christ. Uh, what I want to do with our Monday morning devotionals is kind of look at it as I would look at it with my devotions. So what's a reasonable thing we could take out of God's word when we read it for 30 minutes in the morning, perhaps with the help of a study Bible or a devotional commentary or something like that. Uh, so that is the goal. But one thing that's really helpful for us, and uh, this is why I like to have a study Bible. So I've got a couple study Bibles I use and kind of rotate through. Um, I'm using right now a Charles Spurgeon study Bible, but uh, this one is helpful. This specific passage in Zechariah is helpful to have uh, just a general study Bible to help orient us on what is going on and whose names are important to what storyline, because there's actually a lot of names that we've read uh, since we've been in Ezra and Daniel and now in Zechariah. And so what I want to do before we get going is to kind of just give a layout. Um, <clears throat> I'm going to give a summary of the, the kings we're seeing right now, and then I'm going to give a summary of the text, because if you're like me, when we're looking at a text and there's all sorts of names, if we don't have a place to put those names and kind of help us create a timeline, uh, my scatterbrained brain doesn't focus on the text and said I'm trying to connect all these dots together, and that's why for me having a study Bible is really helpful, because I can just look at a footnote and see, aha, this isn't Darius the Mede, this is Darius of Persia, this makes sense now. Otherwise, uh, my brain kind of has incomplete code loops, and I just start twitching on the couch until my kids come and hold me. Uh, so anyway, the the lineup of kings we are seeing in uh, this section. So remember, we saw uh, the northern tribe of Israel fall to Assyria in 722. And then in 586, the southern kingdom of Judah fell to Nebuchadnezzar. And so that is King Nebuchadnezzar who takes them and brings them back to Babylon. That's where we read about Daniel, right? Daniel's people are in Babylon. 
Um, and in the book of Daniel, we read that after Nebuchadnezzar is there, uh, Belshazzar is there, and that's uh, the one where we have the handwriting on the wall. That's King Belshazzar. And then there's da uh, Daniel in the lion's den. And this happens not under Nebuchadnezzar, not under Belshazzar, but under Darius the Mede. And so this is important because we're going to see two Dariuses. Uh, there's Darius the Mede, and that is King Darius who... Uh, begrudgingly throws Daniel into the lion's den, rejoices that God, that Daniel's God has saved him. Um, and then after Darius the Mede, we have Cyrus, king of Persia. And so we read about Cyrus in the latter parts of Daniel as well. We see that it is in the reign of Darius the Mede and Cyrus of Persia that Daniel flourishes in the kingdom of Babylon. Now we begin the book of Ezra. And in Ezra, we see that Cyrus, king of Persia, um, can, uh, uh, contemporaneous with Daniel sends some exiles back to Jerusalem to build the temple. And so that's where we see Ezra going in the first wave of exiles that is described in chapter one of Ezra. And so that's under Cyrus of Persia. Now after Cyrus, Cyrus, we read of King Artaxerxes of Persia. And it's King Artaxerxes uh, who doesn't know about Cyrus's decree or is at least deceived by the enemies of Israel um, into stopping the construction of the temple, right? They tell uh, Artaxerxes that if they build this temple, Israel's going to become a great nation. They're going to stop paying tribute. They're going to be uh, kind of insurrectionists against the uh, kingdom of Persia. And so Artaxerxes puts an end to that, and the, the temple building kind of comes to an end with some of the exiles having returned back to Jerusalem until we get to Darius, not the Mede, Darius of Persia. And uh, Darius in Ezra... Three and four, uh, right? I think that's correct. Uh, goes and the Israelites write to King Darius and say, "Hey, look in your your records of kings, and you'll see that it was King Cyrus who said we could do this, and we're he actually wanted to pay for it." And so Darius goes and he sees the record, and he then allows the Israelites to continue rebuilding on the temple. And we read in that passage of Ezra that all this is happening back in Jerusalem during the during the prophets, uh, uh, the time of the prophets of Haggai and Zechariah. And so this is where now we come to the book of Zechariah. And so um, there's uh, potential in this book for uh, it to be at any point of time uh, during this period where the Israelites are back and the temple is kind of starting and stopping and, and being rebuilt. But that's where we find the book of Zechariah. And so with that said, I just want to give a quick summary as to what it was. If you haven't had a chance to read yet, Zechariah in the F260 plan, we start with uh, Zechariah 1, 1 through 6. And in this, it opens up with um, Zechariah, uh, introduces him as the son of Edo. So we know that he's the same Zechariah that Ezra is talking about. And opens up with this plea for repentance. God is calling Israel to repent and to turn back to him. Um, and that's important for everything that's going to follow. And so that's chapter one. We're introduced to Zechariah. We're introduced to this call to repentance. And then we get to Zechariah. The first part is just a series of visions. And so we get to uh, a vision, which is the, a third vision of Zechariah already in chapter two. And in this, uh, Zechariah envisions this man who takes a measuring line and begins to measure out the dimensions of Jerusalem. And then another angel comes and says, one day the city will have so many people and so many animals uh, that it will not have walls because to wall it in is to limit the grace that God has had on this city. And we also see that God has promised to protect Israel. He will be their wall. Um, there'll be singing and there'll be joy. And we'll come back to this one in a minute. 
and it ends with, Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. In other words, God is going to redeem his people, and there's nothing that any nation that opposes God can ever do about it. There will be no more exile for God's people when this wonderful prophecy is fulfilled. And then we skip way forward in the book of Zechariah to the last uh, half of it in Zechariah chapter 12. And in this, we see kind of uh, this promising of continued protection. And so if people are to lay siege against Jerusalem or against Judah, uh, God is going to stand with his people. And so actually, uh, we'll talk about this in a second. In the first, in chapter three, we see that God's going to bring nations in to his people. But actually here, we see that if nations stand against God's people, they will be judged. Um, and so it is not good to stand opposed to God's people at this event that Zechariah is predicting. God will defend them. Um, and he says, uh, on that day, I will make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot in the midst of wood, like a flaming torch among sheaves, and they shall devour to the right and to the left the surrounding people, while Jerusalem shall again be inhabited in its place. And again, we see this promise of the, the line of David. That's been something that's important. On that day, the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the feeblest among them shall be like David. And the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. On that day, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And then there's this really important passage for the New Testament, for the role of prophecy. And this begins in chapter 12, verse 10, where it says this. So all of this salvation that's coming, all this siege work that's coming is couched in this specific um, turn of repentance. So in chapter 1. Zechariah calls them to repent, and here we actually see the repentance, but it's, it's important to note when this repentance comes. When will Israel and Jerusalem and Judah be broken about their sin? He says this in verse 10, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps for the firstborn. And then he goes on in the remainder of the chapter to describe the nature of this mourning and how it's comprehensive, this mourning over the one on whom they have pierced. So that is the summary of what we're looking at today in Zechariah 1, 2, and 12. Um, and so what we're doing, again, looking at it devotionally, we're kind of uh, looking three places with the text. We're looking up, what does this text teach us about God? We're looking in, what does this text teach us about ourselves? And we're, we're looking out, what does this text teach us about how we live as image bearers, as Christians, as church members, as fathers, sisters, brothers, mothers, all of that good stuff. So um, I have a couple things for each that I just want to touch on. Uh, first, we see uh, in chapter 1, verses 1 through 6, God's grace to the repentant, right? God is calling those who have sinned back to him to repent. And isn't that a wonderful truth um, that God calls people back? And there is a sense where God judges those who come back, but by grace, he judges the sinners who come back uh, in Jesus. And so there's that connection that we'll look at to the one whom we pierced. Uh, to come back is to come back to God, uh, and, but he promises blessing for those who repent. And that's uh, such an interesting uh, dynamic when you really think that God wants to call sinners back to himself. Repent, he says, uh, and I will return to you, right? Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts in verse three. If we think about this just from a perspective of people sinning against us, <clears throat> we generally don't want to call them back to ourselves. And if we do call them back to ourselves, it is only to vindicate ourselves. 
But God, this good and gracious covenant-keeping God is constantly calling people back to himself, the same people who have rejected him, the same people who we see uh, that that Zechariah mentions did not hear or did not pay attention. God calls them back. And because of God's grace and his sacrificial system in the Old Testament and the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus in the New Testament, not only does he call people who have offended him back, but when they come back, they do not receive judgment. They receive grace. I don't think this is something that stood out to me this morning. Probably the biggest thing in looking at this text is the nature of God to call us to repentance. Repentance seems like just this uh, religious word void of emotion, kind of just this uh this, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? This obligation we have to be right with God. But the offer of repentance is amazing in and of itself. That to think of people in our world who have been wronged to invite repentance instead of begrudgingly accepting repentance, right? I have kids and we ask my kids uh, when they've sinned against someone to, to go ask for forgiveness, to go repent to that person. And it's, it's, uh, the, the, the kid who is sinned against kind of begrudgingly accepts the repentance, right? We're still growing in our understanding of the gospel with our kids. And so they begrudgingly accept it because they really want, what they want is not to forgive. What they want is to be vindicated. They want to, they, they take greater joy in watching the offending sibling get spanked than they do. That sounds weird. We don't make our kids watch other kids get spanked. So just for the record. Um, but uh, what they really want is they want vindication. Um, they don't necessarily want the heartfelt repentance. But God, because of what Jesus does, can both vindicate and both accept heartfelt repentance and give grace. And so what a wonderful gift that we have a God who calls us to repent. Amazing and astounding mercy is locked up in the call to repent. Do not, even in efforts, and so maybe we'll come back to this, in evangelism, the call to repent is a sign of God's heart towards us. It, it does communicate that we are sinful, but it also communicates God's astounding grace that he would even call us to repent. So that's the first thing I see is God's grace to those who are repentant, that God himself would return to us. How good is that? God meets us in our repentance. Uh, grace is amazing in all of scripture. The next thing we see is God's zeal for the nations. And so if you remember way back with Father Abraham, who had many sons, there was this promise that God would bless nations through his covenant people. And what does that look like? Well, we would think that maybe it just means that uh, the people of Israel become kind of established as Israel. They go to the promised land. Jerusalem becomes this modern day New York. And people just want to flock there because the land of opportunity. That would make sense to our minds um, if we want to bless the nations. But what actually happened is uh, Israel becomes established. They go into to Egypt as slaves. God brings them out. He brings them into the promised land. They fail in the promised land. They go into captivity. But it's actually from Israel's captivity among the nations that God has promised to bring the nations to himself. We saw this uh, in verses uh, 10 through 11 of chapter 2. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. So that's language we see in Revelation too. Um, and so there is this, uh, so eschatological simply means uh, having to do with the eschaton, the last things, so future events. So there is, in all of these prophecies, um, future events that are yet to come, kind of intermixed with foreshadowing that happens in history. But verse 11, he says this, And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. And I will dwell in your midst and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And so we hear um, almost word for word things that are talked about in Revelation where nations are coming. and God will dwell in the midst of his people and he will be their God. 
And so what an amazing thing to see that God has actually in what is a punishment of part of his people, that is exile, God is actually adding to his people, to his blessing in abundance through the nation seeing the wonder of this God who cares for his people. And what are people going to see that's going to attract them to this God? His grace towards his people, his wonderful love towards those who had sinned, and now he is bringing them back to bless them. Because God is a covenant-keeping God. And so everything about God is so good, so good that it is attractive to our neighbors. Um, And that doesn't mean that evangelism is always attractive. Because the nature of coming back is not just walking into blessing. The nature of coming back is repentance. It's acknowledging the brokenness of our heart. And we in our flesh, no matter how wonderful it seems, um, cannot do that. The gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing. And so we need God's Holy Spirit to open our eyes to see this wonder. But when we're sharing the gospel with people, we expect that God might do that. And we know that because he did it for us. So there's this wonderful idea of God going to the nations. And we ought to be a church that goes to the nations as well. So I failed a lot in my categories there because I went to a lot of looking out. So, um, you know, act like I talk about that later if my looking out point isn't as good. Now what I want to do is look in. There's two things I want us to see here. First, it again, it communicates God's uh, wonderful grace towards us. In 2 verse 8, uh, Zechariah says this, speaking as God, um, Behold, I will shake my hand over them. That is those who, um, uh, or excuse me, verse 8. For thus says the Lord of hosts, after his glory has sent me to the nations who plundered you, for he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. And so Zechariah is saying God is going to, for the zeal of his glory, he is going to come after the nations who come against God's people because to touch God's people is to touch the apple of his eye. And that's actually, if you're reading in the ESV, an, an homage to the King or to the William Tyndale's translation, which influenced the King James Version. So it's apple of my eye. It's kind of a cultural uh, phrase now, but it was translated that way originally. And where that phrase came about was William Tyndale when he was translating uh, scripture into English. So sidebar, that's free content on your Monday morning. Um, but to think that God's people, that is Israel, the Old Testament, that is, uh, those who are one to added to Israel by faith in Jesus Christ through um, uh, through Jesus in the New Testament, we are the apple of God's eye, uh, or as translated in other translations, the pupil of his eye. We are a sensitive and cherished spot in the affection of God himself. This same God who we see in chapter 12, who stretches out the heavens, has set not Niagara Falls, not the constellations of the galaxies, but us by grace, through Jesus Christ, as the apple of his eye. God cares so deeply for his people, deep enough to call them to repentance, deep enough to punish them with exile so that they might turn and realize that God provides everything they look to the world's gods to provide. God finds his people as the apple of his eye. And so when we, and this is a theme that Peter talks about for those of us who are with us on Sunday, when we encounter suffering in this world, what is Peter always reminding us of? Beloved, beloved. We are loved by God. And so for Israel, where he is predicting a sort of physical preservation in the midst of battles, um, God's church hasn't been promised that but we've been promised a spiritual preservation, right? Where uh, we have a resurrected body and nothing can take that away from us. And in the midst of our sorrow, in the midst of our suffering, we are reminded that we are the apple of God's eye. He loves us. 
And how much does he love us? Well, he loves us so much that he sent his son to die for us, to bring us back. And this is where the latter part of our reading today, Zechariah 12, starting in verse 10, has influence. And so not only are we the people of God's eye, but we can gaze on the one who was pierced. So there's this um, prediction that comes. And so right before this, Zechariah talks a lot about the false shepherds and the good shepherd um, who is coming from from Israel to care for God's people. And he says, I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace, pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps for a firstborn. And so uh, this text doesn't straight away get to the church. There's all this historical context around it, but commentators um, aren't fully sure uh, who this is that was pierced that they're talking about. It could have been um, uh, uh, one, Josiah as kind of the king of Israel who got killed in battle, you know, kind of the last great king who got killed. Was he the one who was pierced? Um, but uh, how John uses this is he kind of applies the shepherd language that Zechariah is calling about and this good shepherd who's going to come and lead God, God's people. Um, he is going to apply that to Jesus, that Jesus is the one who was pierced. And because of that, uh, people will grieve and they'll see their sin. And so Spurgeon actually has this really cool um, take on this text, which, which hit me, is what we see in the following part of this, which is key to repentance, right? God in this is pouring out a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. This is the repentance. This, this is how good God is. He commands repentance in chapter 1, but here, by the uh, events that are happening in chapter 12, repentance is finally coming. God is changing people's hearts by giving them a spirit of grace and providing for them pleas of mercy. How is that happening? Well, we see two things. We see first, this great grief over sin, this great grief over the failings of Israel, which has caused this one, this cherished one, whomever he was, to be pierced. And a lot of times we think, um, myself included, that if we want to repent, we just have to look at the disgusting nature of our sin. And it is true, our sin is disgusting. But we can almost um, look at sin and just want to like rub it all over ourselves to kind of pull out the sackcloth and ashes and become super dejected because of our sin. And then we, when we reach a point of penance, we understand that we can be vindicated by Jesus. But Spurgeon points out this unique thing, that it doesn't start with weeping. It doesn't start by looking at the mess of your sin. What does it start with? It starts with looking on him whom they have pierced. And so um, Spurgeon says that as much as we want to start by looking at our sins so that we feel the weight of sin and then repent, he calls us to look at Christ and see his beauty and see the way in which he was punished. And because of what we see about Christ, now we actually see sin in the right lens. Without looking at Christ, we cannot understand our sin rightly. Without looking at Christ, if we just start with our sin, we will only ever relate to God through a level of penance. Have I repented enough? Have I grieved enough? Have I smeared enough? Have I cut myself enough with pottery and smeared? enough ashes on myself. But if we look at Christ on him who was pierced for us, it leads to repentance. It leads to mourning over sin. It leads to rejoicing over what Christ has done. It leads to us understanding that the wages of our sin is death. And Jesus, the peerless, spotless, ultimate chief shepherd of God was pierced for us. How ought we to turn from that same sin and choose to cling to Jesus? And so Spurgeon has this quote. He says, repentance is in no sense a preparation to faith in Christ. 
It is, on the other hand, a legitimate consequence of faith. In other words, we see all the mourning here, and we see that that's a provision that God gives, but we don't walk into mourning by mourning. We walk into mourning for our sin by looking at Christ and having faith that the one whom we've pierced is the one who shows us the weight of sin, but also how we are the apple of God's eye, that this is how much he loves us. And so when it comes to the emotions of God, and that is both being loved by God, but also a sinner condemned in our sin, it is only Jesus and his cross, which lets us hold both of those in the right tension where we can be devastated by our sinfulness, devastated by our rebellion, which led us into spiritual exile. But also we can rejoice with great confidence that God has made us an apple of his eye where no one can touch us, where one day we will be in a heavenly Jerusalem where God adds so many people by grace to this wonderful new world that there will be no walls, but God himself will be our protection. We have that wonderful hope because our hope is in the one who was pierced, God himself, Jesus Christ, who came and died for our sins. And so there's this, that's what stands in the midst of the tension of our own hearts. When we look in, we must learn to see how Jesus is the one who brings us back to God by taking away our sins. And it is therefore Jesus who defines repentance to turn and to be changed. It is Jesus who defines mourning because we see the weight of our sin. And it is Jesus who defines love as the apple of God's eye because we are now robed in Christ. When God sees us, why does he love us so much? Because when he sees us, he sees his own son through faith by grace. So that's looking in. Um, really good stuff there. Uh, be- beautiful, beautiful prophecy. Looking out, uh, how does this change the way we live? Well, I do think I used up some of my good stuff in looking up, so forgive me for that. Uh, but one thing I had here is uh, kind of pulling from what we've been looking at in First Peter on Sundays at Sovereign Hope is life in a blended world. And so remember at this point in time, people have gone back to Jerusalem and they're going to complete the temple. We saw that in Ezra, the temple being completed, but it wasn't final. And so there's kind of these three waves of exiles that go back there. Um, the first one goes back and they establish the temple. The second one goes back and they, they kind of establish right worship. The temple's built, but worship isn't there. So they'll establish worship and, and we'll see that later on in Ezra. And then the last one comes back and they kind of build the wall. And so there's concentric things that, that kind of complete it. Uh, but we never in this world find ourselves at the completion of God's plan for restoration. That lies in the future. That lies in the heavenly Jerusalem that God is bringing, that he'll bring down, that he will call all of his saints to at the second coming of Jesus Christ. And so when we encounter in this world the pain of this blended world, the pain of other kings seeming to stop the progression of God's mission, stop the progression of worship, we are to remember that this is the very world in which God has called us to do this. It is actually in the opposition of the world that we will get to proclaim God's faithfulness to kings, to remind kings of what God has done for his people. And so I really see this nature of evangelism um, in this text to where as we are citizens of God's kingdom, but living life in this kingdom, we also, just as the Jews were, were after worship, after establishing right worship of God. Uh, They did it to to show the place of the temple so that people might come to the temple. We do it because we have seen the new temple, Jesus Christ, the body uh, who who, in that temple, um, it was destroyed and in three days raised again. And so we call people in a blended society, a society of people who love Jesus and people who don't love Jesus. We call people to this new temple and we point to it and we say, here is your hope, O nations, come to it. And we can expect opposition. 
and we can expect success because God uses both for his ends. And when we feel crushed, when we feel opposed, what do we do? We look at the one who is pierced for us and we know that we might be crushed, but we are not destroyed, right? There's that language Paul uses. Um, we are treasures in jars of clay. Uh, and Jesus gives us hope to fulfill this mission in this world, knowing that there's an ultimate hope of a new and final Jerusalem. We see that in, the author, in, in Hebrews, we see that in Revelation, where uh, we finally get to live in God's kingdom by God's grace, ruled by King Jesus in a direct physical way. And so in light of this, let us go out today, Monday, into our work week, and let us begin to call people to Christ, the one who is pierced for us, so that they might rejoice with joy inexpressible. This is our memory verse this week. I failed a lot at the memory verses for this, but it's Zephaniah 3.17. says this, the Lord God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness, he will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. What a great piece of information that we are saved by this God. What a great reality that God rejoices over us in singing because of what Christ has done. But how much more then should we call others to experience this Jesus um, so that they might also experience his love and be the apple of God's eye by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. So that was just a look at some things I took away from my devotions today. Um, again, we're 29 minutes in. It was helped by nothing but like some study Bibles and just reading. Um, I don't think it's this profound thing, but the point is, is when we look at God's word in light of the cross, we can actually pull a lot out. Um, and that leads us into deeper Bible study later on. So with that said, let me pray for us. And then uh, we'll let you guys move on with your week. Lord Jesus, we thank you that we are the apple of your eye that we know that in this world, because of um, the one whom was pierced, we know that when opposition arises against us in our hearts, whether it's through the calling of sin or in this world through just the realities of sin, um, that you will not let them touch us and pull us away into exile again, back into slavery because we are the apple of your eye. And Lord, that means that there might be times where we have to stand in faith and in the power of the Holy Spirit and resist and continue to work despite orders. But Lord, we love that Jesus shows us how much you have done for us. We love that he shows us the weight of sin and the weight of love. And we pray that we live life in that tension. We pray all of this in your name. Amen.